You're listening to ReachMD. The following program was recorded at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit Program in Chicago. Your host is Ana Maria Rosario, who welcomes Dr. Martin Chavez to discuss maternal-fetal medicine perspectives on Zika virus issues. Dr. Chavez is Director of Maternal-Fetal Medicine and Fetal Surgery Program in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Winthrop University Hospital. He is also Clinical Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Medicine at Stony Brook University School of Medicine. And here's your host, Ana Maria Rosario. Dr. Chavez, thank you for being here. Welcome to ReachMD. Anna Marie, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, it's a pleasure and always an honor to help educate your uh, listeners. So let's start off with uh, reviewing some of the characteristics of the Zika infection that you think clinicians should be talking about with their patients. Excellent starting question. I think it's important that clinicians not only be comfortable in talking about the Zika virus, but asking some basic common questions at each and every visit. One of the questions that we routinely ask is if they have any current um, or near future travel plans during their pregnancy. Or are they going to try to conceive within uh, the next eight weeks to six months, and I'll give a little bit more information as to why that time frame, and travel at the same time. In addition to that, I also ask them questions, are their partners traveling outside of uh, the United States or specific areas in the United States? pertaining uh, to Zika-infected areas. Now, most patients who get infected don't even develop any symptoms, is, is that correct? Absolutely. 80% of patients don't have any symptoms whatsoever. So the other 20% can have symptoms, and they can include um, anything from a macular papular rash, uh, fever, um, joint pains, uh, non-purulent conjunctivitis, uh, general malaysia, headaches. So those are the challenges because a lot of other things can cause these things as well. But the majority of patients, like I said, 80% will not have any symptoms whatsoever. If we trace the history of known Zika outbreaks across the world, how far back does it go? So historically, Zika was actually first uh, discovered in the 1940s. Though the way it got its name, it's because it was discovered in primates in the Zika forest in Uganda. And at that time, they thought it was a virus that was just specific to um, primates, monkeys. And they just observed it, they studied it, they identified it. Interestingly enough, probably a decade and a half later, it was then discovered in humans in uh, approximately 1960s in Nigeria. This is the first time it was actually reported to jump um, species. So now it was not just in primates, monkeys, but now in, in humans. And that's a significant point because after that, then it actually traveled throughout the, the world. It headed to uh, places like Malaysia, Pakistan, and then um, it traveled through the Pacifics. And then um, it started to uh, appear in the Americas after that. So when talking about the Americas, when did the most recent outbreak in the Americas begin? And did anything uh, set it apart from previous outbreaks? So the Americas, as we know, are South America, Central America, and North America. Actually, the outbreak was reported in uh, 2014, 2016. And that's important because that's, as, as you remember, that's when they were getting ready for the Olympics and people were starting to worry about how the Olympics would affect the spread of the Zika virus. So what actually is, um, makes it different from other uh, epidemics that occurred um, specific to the Zika virus is that it actually 
actually mutated. When they look at the genetic makeup, they sequence the viruses when it was in the South Pacific and how now it's different in the Americas is that it, this strain actually is more virulent and pathogenic. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in the interview. So roughly how far has the Zika penetrated into the United States? So that's a twofold question. If you're looking at cases that actually have occurred in the United States, that's limited in the continental United States just to a, a few counties in Florida, or a few regions in Florida, very small specific regions. Now, if you include um, areas outside of the continental United States, such as the territories, uh, Puerto Rico is a perfect example, we're talking about many more cases. And I think it's important that people realize that there's a difference between a travel-associated infection versus a locally acquired infection. So in the United States, most of the infections have occurred because of travel. There are a, um, some cases that have occurred, um, approximately 140 or so, um, that have been transmitted in the United States, but that's only in Florida when you're talking about the continental United States. So have the rates of new cases continued to rise or, or have the cases kind of dropped off? So they do continue to rise. So in the United States um, itself, it's around 139 in the continental United States. But when you get outside of the United States in U.S. territories, so for example in um, areas like Guam or Puerto Rico, specifically Puerto Rico, you're looking at over 31,000 cases that have been documented. So there is a big difference. When you're looking at the United States, um, the number of travel-related cases are over 4,000, 4,035 as of you know the beginning of the week. <laughs> and this changes on a regular basis. I encourage all our clinicians as well as our patients to routinely, particularly if they're taking care of patients with Zika, to routinely go to the CDC website and um, get updated to the most current numbers as well as current guidelines. How many species of mosquitoes are carrying Zika in the United States and are the infection patterns any different between them? So now we're going to get into a slightly different world of, of biology, but I'm going to try my very best to, you know, to try to delineate this and make it as straightforward for our listeners as possible. So there's two types of mosquitoes. The one that we know that definitely transmits it um, is going to be the Aedes aegypti. This is the one that, um, that people know from South America, Brazil. And the other one that's more prevalent in the United States is Aedes albopictus, the difference being is that the aegypti specifically targets human beings. So the likelihood of transmission is going to be higher with this particular uh, species of uh, mosquitoes. Um, Albopictus has uh, the distinction that it also not only goes after humans but also uh, animals. And that small little subtlety makes a difference with the transmission rate. And we also have to remember that it's not just Zika virus, but it's also other tropical diseases as well. And hopefully we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. You mentioned about recommendations to patients and clinicians and going into the CDC website. What travel recommendations should clinicians be making to their patients at this time? So I can tell you that it is strongly recommended that if you're pregnant, that if you are thinking of traveling, not to go to areas where Zika is prevalent. 
because we know that there have been some um, deleterious effects to pregnancies when Zika infection does occur. And hopefully we'll elaborate on that a little bit further um, down the interview. But I tell patients, I very strongly encourage them that if they're going to go to these areas, either postpone until after the pregnancy, or if they absolutely positively have to go for either emergencies or family um, purposes, that they should make sure that they're in areas that are screened off, air conditioning, and that they use insect repellent that has been uh, purchased in the United States and is uh, um, have been cleared by the EPA. And they can go to the EPA website and actually punch in the parameters that they're looking for and they'll make recommendations as to what products are safe in pregnancy. I can tell you though that having DEET in uh, insect repellent is, is safe in pregnancy and is very much recommended to reduce the, the likelihood of an insect bite, particularly mosquitoes. So what do we currently know about the maternal fetal transmission of Zika? So studies have been showing that the transmission rate, um, the vertical transmission rate from mother to fetus can be anywhere from 2 to 13 percent. And that 13 percent is the most alarming. We have to remember that not every single mother that does end up with an infection is going to transmit it to it, the fetus, one. And two, the ones that do transmit it to the fetus, is, there can be um, different consequences to that fetus. And that's where there's a lot of research going on. One, exactly how this transmission occurs. We know it goes to the placenta because they've actually seen viral particles in the placenta but in the, and also in the fetal tissue. But we also know that not every single mother who comes down with Zika gets this infection um, to the fetus as well. So on the flip side, what don't we know? about the transmission of the Zika infection. So what we're still trying to uh, learn as quickly as possible, what is the long-term consequences to pregnancies where the mom is infected but the fetus doesn't show any sequelae of the Zika infection? And I'm talking about sequelae. The most severe sequelae is where you actually have destruction of brain tissue or um, eye tissue in a uh, fetus or in a, in a newborn a after you know, exposure in utero. We also are trying to figure out if what's making this particular strain or what in particular is making this different from other infections in the past. Because other infections in the past have, uh, have outbreaks, but they didn't have the consequences of microcephaly, which is an abnormally small head. Um, and also destruction of brain tissue. And that's what causes a small head, the destruction of brain tissue, uh, not allowing the skull to, to grow. And the, the challenges are, what happens with these children afterwards, long-term follow-up, and also children that might have been exposed to in utero, but um, you know during the pregnancy or even immediately afterwards, have no clinical findings. We need to follow these children for several years to figure out exactly if any consequences occur. Uh, Dr. Chavez, you mentioned earlier a couple of things that you could recommend, um, but just to elaborate if we can about what are recommendations for couples trying to conceive when Zika infection in either partner is suspected? Right now the CDC is recommending that if anyone is concerned that they might have gotten Zika in a Zika zone that has infection currently going on, if it's a female they should wait at least eight weeks before trying to get pregnant after symptoms. 
The challenge is that, remember, 80% of patients don't have symptoms. So I get this question asked all the time in our practice, well, I didn't have any symptoms, so does that mean I, I didn't get the, the virus? Unfortunately, there's no way to, to tell. And depending on when we test for the virus, the window of opportunity for testing might have already passed. And the testing that we have is not necessarily the, the best as well. So I tell all our patients that if they've been in an area where Zika virus is active and they're interested in getting pregnant as a precaution, and also this is what the CDC recommends, is waiting at least eight weeks before trying to conceive. That's for the female partner. It gets a little bit more challenging for the male partner because that is up to six months. And the reason we recommend six months is because for certain infections, such as Zika virus, there are uh, safe harbors in the human body. In the male part of our species, the testicular tissue is actually a safe harbor and they've actually detected the virus several months after an infection in a male. So as a precaution, they want males to wait at least six months after being possibly infected with the Zika virus. Finally, Dr. Chavez, any other associated infections or known complications from Zika that we need to keep an eye on? Absolutely. Remember, this is a tropical disease and tropical diseases tend to travel in, in groups. Um, I can tell you that the mosquito that actually transmits Zika virus also transmits two other tropical diseases, one of them being uh, dengue and the other one being chikungunya. Now, it's important, while these are extremely rare and there have been um, some reported outbreaks in the United States limited to Hawaii, Texas, and Florida, these numbers are extremely low. So, for example, with chikungunya, there's less than a thousand reported cases a year in uh, the United States, and with uh, dengue, it's less than uh, 20,000 a year. And usually they present with either fever, joint pains. Um, with dengue, you might have uh, issues with coagulation, so it's, it's prudent that if someone does come down with a fever, not to give them any aspirin to this way to avoid any further bleeding disorders. One other thing that it's not a cause of the infection, but it has been associated with, with Zika virus uh, infection is uh, Guillain-Barre. And the reason we mention this is that it's, it's something we typically learn and read about in medical school. It's extremely rare. And what happens is it's a, a condition in which your immune system attacks your nerves, leading to muscle weakness and even paralysis on rare, rare occasions. Fortunately, most of the time, this is self-resolving and we have the resources in the United States to provide support. And most of the support is just going to be IV fluids um, or some pain management. But we have been seeing that when a person does have an infection with Zika virus, there can be a chance of, of this being flared up. We're not sure what the exact cause is. We think it's that because the virus somehow modulates or alters the immune system in that particular um, patient that it might predispose them to this particular neurological disease. And you mentioned that these were tropical, so they might be more like Caribbean or uh, coming from South America? or. So remember, there's tropical and subtropical. So depending on the time of year in the United States, the weather can be on the warmer side, but specifically in the coastal southern areas of the United States. But yes, typically when we think of tropical, we're talking about Central Caribbean as well as um, uh, South America. Okay. And I tell patients before they make any commitment to any travel plans, Think about your reproductive plans and your reproductive desires. As we all know, 50% of pregnancies are, are not planned in the United States, and that's very typical and very, very common. And particularly after 
you know you've you've married or you're you're started a relationship you want to take this into consideration the last thing you want to do is jeopardize your pregnancy because of going to certain regions of the world okay. any final thoughts Dr. Chavez, that we didn't cover? We are looking at more research, um, waiting for more research to give us guidance as to how to best test for this. We know that there is a, if there's a risk, we recommend it for our patients not only uh, ultrasound surveillance, but also an amniocentesis to confirm the, the infection if it's highly suspect, particularly if there's um, abnormal ultrasound findings. I can, I can tell you that in the near future, there's, there's no um, vaccine or no prophylactic medication that we can provide to our patients. My only last um, recommendation would be to advise patients to avoid these areas, particularly if they're thinking or they're currently off pregnant. Well, Dr. Chavez, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and giving us uh, your perspectives on the Zika infection from the maternal fetal medicine point of view. Dr. Chavez, great having you on the program. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to ReachMD. To access this and other programs in the series, please visit ReachMD.com, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thank you for listening.